0: This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett.
1: Welcome back to Cultural Debris. Last time we spoke, it had just snowed here. Now summer has arrived. The good news is I was able to remove that monkey grass from my patio bed, The bad news is, I don't know what to replace it with. I apologize for being gone a little longer than usual. Life hopped in the way, including a water-in-the-basement situation that was, as you might imagine, unexpected, also unpleasant. I appreciate your patience and your willingness to listen to my various ramblings. If you are interested in supporting cultural debris, Please leave a five-star rating and a positive review. Also consider visiting the Cultural Debris Patreon at patreon.com slash culturaldebris. You will find some free videos there. More on the way, I promise. And you can become a patron if you would like. Some of you may have noticed a certain preoccupation I have with books Now that restrictions are fast disappearing, I was overjoyed that the local library bookshop reopened after being closed for over a year since last March. They sell some library discards, but mostly good condition donated books. You never know what you might find. It was certainly nice to see smiling faces down in the basement shop again after so long, and I may have found a book or two. You might check and see if there's a library bookshop where you are they sometimes can have a little gold in those shelves one of my more interesting finds recently was the c.s lewis space trilogy in 1970 era paperback i love old mass market paperbacks and pulps with their often striking cover illustrations these are very fun in that kind of 1960s, 1970s futuristic way. Of course, if you have books, you also may from time to time need a bookcase. I picked up one of those recently, too. It's a barrister bookcase made by the old firm Globe Warnicky of Cincinnati, Ohio. It was the gold standard for high-quality Office equipment and furniture back in its day, and most of the barrister bookcases that you see around in antique shops and so forth are Globe Wernicke's. This one is probably around a century old. It is made of oak and is in need of a bit of TLC. Two of the glass panes are missing and will need to be replaced, but soon. It will be living its best life as a repository for my various tomes. Our poem is from Wendell Berry and is called June Wind. Light and wind are running over the headed grass as though the hill had melted and now flowed. My guest is Jared Zimmerer, director of the Word on Fire Institute. Jared is a fellow disciple of Russell Kirk and currently is pursuing doctoral research on things Kirkian. It should not surprise you that Dr. Kirk is exactly what we talk about in this episode, particularly the idea of personalism related to Dr. Kirk's writings and the influence of St. John Henry Newman on Dr. Kirk's thought. In the course of that discussion, we also delve into Dr. Kirk's conversion to Catholicism and discuss his view of the need for beauty. It was quite a fun discussion for me, and I hope you enjoy our chat. Jared Zimmer, welcome to Cultural Debris.
0: Great to be with you, Alan.
1: I'm really happy to have you because we're going to talk about a topic near and dear to my heart, and that is Russell Kirk. But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about you. You are director of the Word on Fire Institute. So I know a little bit about Word on Fire. I know a little bit less about the Institute. We did have an Institute fellow on the podcast a little while back, Holly Ordway, yeah. talking about her book on uh, Tolkien's modern readings. Tell me about the Institute and tell me about your role there, if you could.
0: Yeah, so the, the Word on Fire Institute, we launched it officially uh, about two and a half years ago um, on the Feast of St. Therese in uh, 2019. And um, we saw the need for a formational arm to operate under the ethos of Bishop Barron. So many people wanted to know, how do I speak about Jesus? How do I speak about scripture? Um, How do I evangelize like Bishop Barron does? Um, And so we launched this institute realizing that if we did a brick and mortar kind of single location, It wouldn't reach the audience that Bishop Barron has because it's already international. And so we launched an online institute that uh, our our members pay a monthly price uh, for courses on theology, philosophy. So, for example, Bishop Barron has a couple of courses there, one on John Henry Newman, one... On, on von Balthasar, um, we've got some more coming out, but we also have uh, courses on sociology, psychology, basic evangelization, uh, how to evangelize your family and friends, how to live the liturgical year within your own home, um, really any possible need that an evangelist would have uh, in their daily life to uh, preach Christ in everything they do and to do it from an intellectual and philosophical, but also from a very real Um, place. And so um, we've overseen that now for a little over two and a half years, and uh, we're getting close to almost 20,000 members uh, around the world. Uh, And we have a quarterly journal that comes out um, that uh, I think, honestly, is one of the masterpieces of the Institute. It's just absolutely beautiful. And it it combines both the academic and the more popular, uh, in essay form. We also have original poetry, original artwork, uh, tons of stuff in there. So a journal you would really want to keep on your, your bookshelves. (laughs) Um, and so, and then we also have, of course, full-time fellows, um, Holly Ordway being one, she's the fellow of faith and culture here. Uh, and we have several other fellows that are doing both academic and popular work. Um, they're in the Institute. We have our own forums and our own communities and groups, Uh, Forming them in their different areas of life, Uh, so fatherhood, motherhood, how to how to evangelize, um, even at work, you know, things like that. And so, um, the way we see this is kind of um, Bishop Barron's legacy continuing. Uh, for decades, um, we we understand that uh, Bishop Barron uh, is a mortal man, uh, as much as he seems supernatural to <laughs> so many. Yeah. Uh, and we we don't you know want his legacy to to go with him. We want this to continue. We want to see uh, the mission really turn into a, a full fledged movement um, over over the coming years. And so part of the beginning of that was to figure out how can we start forming people and. Um, I've been graced to know Bishop Barron and Father Steve Gruno, who's the CEO at Word on Fire, for about seven, eight years. And um, about four years ago, they brought me on to say I want to make some moves um, in this regard. So um, I've been at the the helm ever since.
1: Well, fantastic. Well, I, I also need to give a uh, a shout out to uh, to my online friend Andrew Pettiprin, who's a uh, who's a fellow there as well and, uh, sort of, uh, originally connected me with word on fire. So we'll, uh, may, may have to get Andrew on to talk about some things at some point. That so let, I, I've, I've got an important question for you. So, I know that you have um, a, a bit of a, a weightlifting background. Who who can uh, bench press more, you or Father Gruno?
0: <laughs> well, I can bench press more, um, but he definitely looks more like a bodybuilder than I do. <laughs> 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 yeah, we have kind of a, a, a history of a lot of just weightlifters just because that, that was actually one of the reasons why I met Father Steve, because we had that mutual interest and um, we just kind of fell in love with it. I actually wrote a little bit and started speaking about how weightlifting and, and Christian spirituality can work really well together, and, and not just weightlifting, but any fitness uh, adventure that's out there, and trying to sort of uh, decartesianize uh, people, get them back into their bodies, you know, uh, which I think is important. And fitness can do that, so
1: right. Well, as as embodied creatures, and we can uh, focus on that. I, I know that, especially after after our. Um, our lockdowns, I, I need to do a little bit of more focusing on that myself and get out, uh, get out. And, yeah, my diet uh, has not been great things. for the past year. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I think it's done a lot of us in. So you are doing uh, some doctoral work uh, about Russell Kirk. And of course, uh, Russell Kirk is someone who uh, has meant a lot to me uh, personally and intellectually for a lot of decades now 3 3 decades i guess and i uh, of course am always interested in people who are interested in dr kirk so one of the things that that i wanted to do with this podcast was was explore uh, dr kirk not exclusively but uh but talk about him when we could so you are doing some some research with him so tell me how you first heard about Dr. Kirk and what attracted you to, uh, to studying him.
0: Yeah, actually, it's funny. I, I'm doing my PhD at Falk green University uh, in Montgomery, and um, it's the Great Books uh, Honors Program there. And one summer uh, early in the program, we had the opportunity to go to Macosta, um, and Dr. Jason Jewell, the program director, and Dr. Benjamin Lockard, who's also a Kirk uh, scholar, was there. And as was Gleaves Whitney, uh, was there. Mm-hmm. And of course, I sure. got to meet uh, the wonderful, lovely Annette, uh, Dr. Kirk's widow. I got to meet uh, her as well. Um, and the main which
1: is always an unforgettable experience <laughs> that's
0: right she's wonderful she's <laughs> wonderful um, the the main source that we used was the essential Russell Kirk um, the collection of essays of, of his and um, before that I actually did not know much about him at all I, I was raised um, in a, a conservative household but the name Russell Kirk wasn't All that familiar. Um, I knew William F. Buckley and a couple of the others uh, in in that era, but I didn't know Kirk that well. But um, when the opportunity came and I I read one of his essays online, I just I knew I had to take the opportunity. Um, And as I I read um, his work, but then also learned just about who he was. There was such a sort of poetic humanistic uh, tone to who and and how he writes um, that I was just very attracted to that. I've always kind of had an understanding of conservatism uh, in regard to say economics or, or politics uh, and Kirk transcends that. Um, he goes much more into a well-rounded, um, humanistic way of understanding conservatism and uh, understanding human nature itself. I mean, prospects for conservatives—the entire thing is basically a question of what is human nature and how are we supposed to uh, afford ourselves properly with that. Um, and so, I just was was liter- legitimately drawn through that. But then also, I, I have a very big passion for liberal education. And of course, he was you know a great fighter for great liberal education, and so um, add that to my love of John Henry Newman, who was a big influence on on Kirk as well, uh, and then just the the majestic atmosphere of being in Macosta that I'm sure added <laughs> some oh, of yes, that as that, well.
1: <laughs> the the atmosphere is a lot uh, at Macosta, and and it's it's one of those things that's really impossible to describe to people who haven't been there, mm-hmm. but once you go, you get it for sure.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, um, you know, getting to spend time actually in his home and in his personal library and um, getting to speak with people like Leaves Whitney who who had met him. And um, there was just something unique about him uh, that I loved. And I also have a background in the Stoics that I love. And so there was just so many different connections that um, I, I just, I decided, you know what, this is what I want to focus on.
1: Right. Dr. Kirk brings together uh, a well of course the conservative mind is such a such a great um anthology of of different thinkers but he brings together and uh so so many of these different streams and blends them like you were talking about with the stoics because uh, dr kirk uh even in in his later years uh continued uh to read marcus aurelius mm-hmm. and kept to uh, kept marcus aurelius on his on his uh, bedside table. And, uh, and of course, as you mentioned, Newman, and I'm, I know we're going to talk uh, a bit about Newman as we go through, but certainly uh, the work that they are doing at the Kirk center is, is very valuable. And uh, I ap- applaud them for, for keeping that going these uh, these many years, the, the work that Annette has done and, and Jeff and Cecilia as well has has really been laudable.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I I think that, um, I I think especially introducing Kirk to a new generation, uh, is, is very, very important. And so the, the work that Kirk Center is doing is just, uh, very, very important.
1: Well, and you, and of course, you know, uh, Jason Jewell and, uh, I'll tell you my, my Faulkner story. I, when I was, uh, living in Alabama several years ago, uh, Jason emailed me and said, Hey, Peter Kraft is going to be here speaking. Oh, Do you well. want to come down? And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, so I got to go, uh, and hear, uh, not, not only hear Peter Kraft speak, but, uh, Jason, let me go to lunch with everybody. So I got to ride in the backseat of a car with Peter Craft and, <laughs> and chat with him. I mean, I'm sure he has no idea who I am, but it was, it meant a lot to me because I, his books have been, uh, are so good and have been so influential. Oh, I, I think uh, Kraft will go down time. as one
0: of the greatest minds of our time. I, he's oh, he's, unbelievable. he's
1: fantastic. Yeah. He's fantastic. And, uh, uh, and I, I feel like maybe people don't Quite appreciate him right now as may, maybe as much as they should, but uh, if we have any listeners out there who who have not read uh, Peter Crave's work, I would send you uh, in that direction. But uh, but that was uh, that was my uh, my Faulkner story, and I, that was a, a a very fond memory that I, that I have of there. <laughs>
0: That's great, yeah. Faulkner University is just such a, a fantastic school. I, I have nothing but the highest praises for them
1: right yeah Jason's doing really good work down there and is doing and is doing an excellent job in in kind of connecting people to dr kirk like yourself and i know of some others who uh, may not have been aware of dr kirk but are people who are definitely receptive to his uh his vision and his understanding of uh, of liberal arts and uh and of tradition and i think once people are once that door is open for people, there's just that uh, really a vast treasure there. Doctor Kirk wrote so much and and uh, and spoke so much that that there's there's something there for everyone. That's right. <laughs> so you, you you began researching Doctor Kirk and uh, tell us a little bit about the direction of that and and uh, I want to talk some with you about uh, about what you're looking into.
0: Yeah. So so far, I've actually have um, two essays that are forthcoming. Uh, One on his conversion to Catholicism, and in particular, the influence that John Henry Newman had uh, on his conversion. Uh, And then the second one is actually on his aesthetics. It's kind of more about what he taught uh, and wrote about beauty and the the uses and sources of beauty. Uh, That'll be coming out from uh, Logos uh, Catholic Journal in uh, this fall. Uh, But then my my big piece of research is my actual dissertation, uh, which is going to be on the personalism. Of Russell Kirk, and uh, for your for your listeners, pers- Christian personalism. There's a numerous different schools uh, in that regard, and um, what I'm trying to um, better understand is I, I know that I could claim him maybe as a personalist, but what kind? Um, because there's different schools involved, and and I'm trying to maybe make the connection that it's very very similar to John Paul II or, or Caravotta, depending on if you call him a Pope or not. Um, and John Henry Newman, uh, the two of them who, who both of whom were influences and he both appreciated. Uh, but what I am, am trying to research is perhaps Kirk was more of a kind of phonetic or a, a practical, uh, personalist.
1: Well, let's talk some about personalism, uh, because I think that's a term that probably most people aren't that familiar with. Um, what, I guess we'll just start at the at the root level. What is personalism? If I hear that someone is a personalist, what should that mean to me?
0: Yeah, and it, it's it's a, an interesting question because it depends on what school we're talking about uh, <laughs> in, in philosophical schools. How that always can work, you know, depending on what Thomist you are. It depends on what you mean by Thomism. Um, but but personalism, in in large part, means that the human person is the guiding light by which. We build societies by which we educate, by which we understand history, by which we um, ph- phenomenologically look at the human person um, and then from there kind of extrapolate, okay, based on human nature, what is best? Um, and so things like selfhood, you'll probably hear that a lot in, in personalists, um, meaning that you are a unique person. Um, And for a Christian personalist would say a unique vision of the Imago Dei in and of yourself, but we are not individualists. So you don't lose yourself in your individualism. Rather, you're respected in who you are as an individual in your own unique human dignity. Um, But that doesn't lose um, or that doesn't place you up and against the community. Rather, you participate in it and you bring that uniqueness Uh, into it. And so it's kind of similar to Dr. Kirk's understanding of principle of proliferating uh, variety. It's um, all of these different, various ways in which the human person, with an objective understanding of human nature, still subjectively reveals the Imago Dei. That's a very Christian way to to understand it. Um, but that's been placed in different political schools. You might have some that lean a little bit more collectivist, some that lean a little bit more individualist. Um, I place Doctor Kirk in the same school as as John Paul II, who ultimately meant that personalism means that love is the ultimate response to the human person and in their human dignity, no matter what.
1: When I, uh, when you were, well, when we were first communicating about the the idea of personalism and I was kind of delving into it uh, to understand it better myself, an essay came to mind because I was, uh, I was pondering the idea of of personalism versus individualism, which you talk about, because you, you can see obviously how sort of the personalist idea could possibly kind of slide into maybe an an individualism, Mm -hmm. but that's, that's not, but that's not what it is. Uh, But an essay that came to mind uh, was one by Richard Weaver on uh, two types of American individualism. And in it, he contrasts uh, John Randolph of Roanoke, of Mm -hmm. course, someone Mm -hmm. that we, we Kirkians are very familiar with. He contrasts uh, John Randolph of Roanoke with Henry David Thoreau. Ah. And, and so in his essay, he says that, uh, that John Randolph is, uh, a, a social bond individualist is what he calls it. And and I think that really what he means by that is the same thing that you mean by personalist that here's, here is Randolph who himself is very individual in his eccentricities, Mm -hmm. but through all of that, he operates within the community and seeks to make the community better. And that Thoreau is what he calls an anarchic individualist. Mm -hmm. That is that he steps outside of the community into which he was born and sort of fights against it and seeks to, to sort of assert his own individuality, not as part of the community, but rather over against it, and and if there's not if there's something he doesn't explicitly agree with, then he is non-participatory, and uh, and of course Weaver crit- criticizes uh, the the Thoreau right. anarchic uh, uh, individualism as as ultimately destructive to uh, to tradition and and to society, whereas Randolph is uh, and his and his approach maintains the the eccentricities of the individual and the the individual talents and and viewpoints while still operating within the context of an existing community, even while striving to make it better.
0: That's absolutely fantastic. <laughs> that, yeah. Those are such good examples of the, of the differentiation between those two understandings. One is kind of an Ayn Randian as well,
1: right, of the, right. the
0: individual for its own selfishness as a virtue. Um, and, and on the opposite end of the spectrum uh, is this kind of collectivism, which as we know, of course, Dr. Kirk was very anti-socialist and anti-communist um, for many reasons, but one in particular is because the individual gets dehumanized. They get lost right. in the kind of the cogs of the wheel of, of politics and culture. And so, um, yeah, that's a, a fantastic <laughs> reference to Weaver.
1: Um, and I, I think that, that we're seeing a lot of, um, you know, continued attacks, obviously, in our society on, on the individual whether from an individualistic or from a personalist perspective, uh, that that sort of commodifies uh, human existence that mm-hmm. we that we do just become kind of cogs and and not uh, not wishing to get to delve too far into this, because I know that this has been sort of a, a controversial issue. But I, I think that, for example, the sort of universal mask wearing that we have that we have seen, mm-hmm. whether whether or not uh, my point here is not whether or not masks are effective and I've worn them when necessary and so forth. Uh, and, but I'm thankful that they are going away, but I feel like the wearing of them has been depersonalizing that that it, that it has, it has taken away part of ourselves to others. And so you don't get to see people smile. You don't get to see people's reaction. You don't get to see people's face and people become just, you know, some sort of masked, uh, random human being, uh, rather than the person that they are. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's a way there are a lot, you know, there are a lot of other things we could point to, but I think it's one that has relevance in the, in the current context, at least.
0: Absolutely. And I I think part of it as well is that it's made it awkward to, to participate in human activity with each other. We we're just now kind of, of course, I live here in Texas and we've been slowly, uh, opening back up. Um, but getting back to actually shaking people's hands or hugging right. people or getting close to people, um, which is a very human activity. We, we've gotten so awkward about that. And it's, it's as if the the person in front of us is now an abstract idea, not an individual anymore.
1: Um, right. And I, I think that's exactly right that, that we, that we turn people into abstractions, which of course, Dr. Kirk was very opposed oh, yeah. to, to abstraction in, in any form. Uh, he was, uh. I, I remember personally him getting, uh, visibly upset <laughs> in a discussion, uh, because, uh, the other person, uh, was dealing with, with abstractions and he was, and he, he said, no, you're this, this is not, you know, we, we can't deal with it in those terms. <laughs> um, and, uh, but, but even writers, um, like like Wendell Berry, uh, very Mm -hmm. much uh, someone who focuses on the particular. And and uh, and I think that his his works fit very well into the personalist uh, viewpoint as well, because obviously uh, the individual is important. But, uh, you know, he has his uh, his Port William membership uh, is what is what he calls the, the the people in his fiction who live in in his in his fictional world they are they are members of this community and as such uh to break out of that is uh you know is an act sort of an act of violence that's what can, my word mm-hmm. not his but against against the, the community as a whole that that you that you respect uh through this mutual understanding one another but at the same time the individual is valued mm-hmm. um and uh and they are helped if, you know, if somebody needs, uh, farm work, you know, and the others have free time, they go and help them so that they can, so that they as a community can prosper. Um, but you have that, um, but you have that obligation as part of the community, uh, to others.
0: Yeah. You know, and I think one of the best examples, um, to, to kind of, uh, talk about Dr. Kirk's personalism, um, which I think, I think it infiltrates a lot of his poetics and his his understanding of history and politics and everything but particularly whenever it comes to liberal learning um so many times um you know he talks about liberal learning not being meant for the use of this individual into an economic system or into a political system it's actually for the individual him or herself it's about ordering the human soul um but that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't now have a part to play in the, in the political or the polis. Um, rather the, the creating of an individual into an ideal citizen, someone who's liberally educated or what he often called maybe a gentleman. Um, it doesn't undermine the selfhood because it's about this individual and the ordering of their soul. However, The ordering of that soul then creates the conditions for the possibility of a morally ordered society outside because they go and bring that order into the greater community. So it's not that they, the individual, it's kind of a both and, both as a a human person, the individual now is ordered properly to truth and to grace and to goodness. um, But it's now expected of them to participate in the community and bring that truth, grace, and ordered nature uh, into the community itself. So it's, it's this great um, kind of Catholic both and, (laughs) if you will.
1: Right. Well, and that kind of falls in line with, um, with with someone like TS Eliot who mm-hmm. obviously a, another great influence on Dr Kirk and and his essay on tradition and the individual talent that yes. you have that you have um that that tradition and certainly this is the way Dr Kirk understood it too tradition is not a fixed thing uh but it is something that um that can be and needs to be modified and that you have somebody uh, a genius and of course um Somebody like Eliot, obviously, that would apply to him, who who makes these sort of, uh, you know, these insights, uh, these poetic insights, and and breaks new ground. I mean, obviously, uh, Eliot, although very much a a traditional minded person, was was clearly not a traditionalist in mm-hmm. in the way he approached poetry, uh, and of course, uh, we we're talking about Newman. Uh, And his and his understanding of uh, of the development of doctrine that Mm -hmm. that you have this uh, this body of tradition, but that it is something that because we have the body of tradition that we can gain further insights uh, and uh, and make innovations that may seem new, but they are but they are also consistent with the with the bounds of the tradition.
0: That's exactly right. Yeah. And I, I think about um, Chesterton's understanding of children at a playground with a, a fence, you know, versus not a fence of when there is a fence, they're more free to play and they actually are able to get closer to the fence. Uh, but the fence exists as the tradition to keep them within the bounds of, for lack of a better term the game right of of how do we uh work this thing out whereas you take away the fence you take away tradition they all end up either closer to the building or they get lost so it's 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 a freeing uh element it should be uh tradition you're listening to the cultural debris podcast
1: let's talk a little bit more then about about uh, personalism let's maybe step back to to newman is is newman um I guess I don't want to say the person who kind of creates the idea of it. I mean obviously you could appoint to other people, I'm sure, but uh, it seems that in the discourses that I've seen limited uh, admittedly that Newman seems to be the figure that people tend to go back to in discussions of of personalism. So is is my reading correct there? If not, please please feel free to to uh to, uh, uh, send me in the right direction.
0: Yeah, that's right. You know, and, and and again, it it depends on the the different schools. Um, you know, some people go to other, other philosophers and theologians, but a a lot of Christian personalists, particularly John, John Paul II and Gabriel Marcel and several of those, um, they certainly knew Newman uh, very well. Um, and the reason being because, um, Newman was a champion of the individual conscience, um, he makes a distinction, for just for example, he makes a distinction between um, notional ascent versus real ascent. And he's talking particularly about, uh, say, God, or, or he uses an example of, of death, that um, the notional idea, an abstract idea of what death means. Of course, people die, and one day I will die. You know, that's that's one way to, to uh, sort of experience it or assent to that truth. But the other is a near-death experience of like, oh, no, I felt my own death. <laughs> that's a very real um, idea. Um, and whenever it talks about conscience, which is based on the individual, um, the conscience gets awakened due to the personal nature of God. So it's the individual um, as a human person uh, in light of God, if he was to commit commit a wrong act, um, well, you don't commit a wrong act and feel guilty about something to an abstraction or to something that uh, doesn't exist. Rather, it's got to be to another individual. It's got to be another person. Um, And so the individual conscience, which is a very personalistic understanding of selfhood, um, it, it awakens in us uh, both our own understanding of ourselves, but then also who we are in light of God. And actually, Dr. Kirk, uh, one of the big insights that he consistently uses in his own um, writing from Newman is this idea of illative sense, um, which is the... the kind of conglomeration of maybe a a abstract idea, a philosophical idea, maybe a theological idea, maybe a hunch, maybe a conversation in a relationship. Maybe, you know, you and I are sitting here talking and maybe we have an insight during this conversation. Well, the, the continued kind of um, bringing together of all of these things is one of the best means of assent to a truth. Um, so he talks about these divine truths that are revealed. Well, the illative sense gets us across that bound to where we can now say, I assent not just based off only this philosophical argument or only this theological reflection, but a continuation of, of many, many things uh, that goes involved into that. And it can be over years Um, But that still is the individual human person taking in all of these different hunches and uh, realities in their life to make an individual ascent to a truth. But when they do that, they join a community. (laughs) They join a community of believers. Um, so it gets back into that personalism uh, as well. And if anyone is interested in particular to the personalism of John Henry Newman, I would point them to the work of Dr. John Crosby, um, who actually has a book on this, um, and uh, which is which is excellent, uh, by the way. But um, yeah, I think that Newman, I mean, <laughs> his intellectual and spiritual grandchildren are going to be, <laughs> unbelievable in numbers in heaven because that man has he was a uh uh, in a class of his own for sure
1: well certainly it was through dr kirk that i was first exposed to newman reading the conservative mind you know decades ago and i remember dr kirk writing about the illative sense and of course that was the first time as a college undergrad i had ever heard of of such a thing but but it makes sense very, uh, very clearly w- when you start to understand it. But it, but it's, but it's apprehending things not through uh, a, a proof or a syllogism, mm-hmm. but it, but it's coming to, uh, I guess, a more natural understanding of truth. And we all, uh, it is something we all use, but it, uh, but it certainly can be developed. Uh, I, I read uh, an essay that Dr. Kirk did on Newman, which I'm sure you've seen, uh, Newman's conservative mind Mm -hmm. or the conservative mind of Newman, which I know is very similar to his, to his, uh, section on Newman in the conservative mind, obviously, but it's a little bit different. Um, and, uh, I was reading through that, uh, again in preparation for this and, you know, and his discussion of the illative sense is really is really enlightening, it and it'd been a while since I had read that. And you can really see how Newman's understanding of that really did have a profound impact on the way I think Dr. Kirk understood his own, I guess, understood his own understanding of, of tradition, that, it, mm-hmm. that it's something because he's blending together in the conservative mind. It's one of the criticisms that critics make of the conservative mind, that you take these individuals who seemingly uh, may, be at, may be at odds with one another. Mm-hmm. And yet Dr. Kirk is saying, no, look, you, there there are these threads here that inform the conservative mind. And Dr. Kirk is pulling through all these threads and weaving them together, I think, through this illative sense and that, that, and that Newman really is informing that worldview from from what uh what seems to me
0: that's right yeah and actually uh in the the famous or one of the famous letters between dr kirk and, and william buckley um it's about his catholicism and one of the questions was um his understanding of authority and kirk actually says i understand i i became to understand what authority is based off of john henry newman uh, and then later in the letter he says i became catholic because of my understanding of authority um, and so to me, that's a very clear indication that, that Newman had a very deep uh, impact on, on Kirk's own understanding of, of authority, and especially in regard to religion. And so when it comes to this idea of conscience, well, Newman is also the champion of the individual conscience, but he's also the champion of authority and religion. And so it's this great kind of balancing effect that I think is very Kirkian of an appreciation still of the individual human person, but in light of the community and at service to the community.
1: Um, And so you see that in Newman as well. Well, I I never discussed Newman directly with Dr. Kirk, but I did talk about religion to some degree with him. I usually had my religious discussions with Annette, but (laughs) Dr. Kirk wasn't wasn't particularly verbose and wasn't really interested in what I had to think about, had to say about it, but, but he, he did assert that and, and rightly that, that, that religion is an issue of, of authority and, and that he had become Catholic due to authority. Now he didn't, we didn't delve into that as far as it related to Newman at the time, but, but uh, clearly that was something that he, that he recognized throughout his life that it was that that his conversion was really in response to this to this understanding that he had of authority and that it was that it was the Catholic Church that answered that in a way. For example, that the Anglo-Catholicism of early Newman and also of of Eliot, who was mm-hmm. who he was friends with, um, and who had who had come to. Uh, Sort of partway on that journey, but he he did not uh, stop along the the way with with Elliot, but uh, but went with Newman uh, because of that authority issue.
0: Yeah, and I think also um, just the the two of them being so alike in mind on a, on a many other topics because they also agree on the idea of liberal education. I I think a lot of Kirk's understanding of liberal education came out of the idea of a university and several other Mm -hmm. uh, writings of Newman. And so they just, they had so many uh, entry points that they agreed on that I think it, 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 at least in my essay, I make the argument that along all that way, there's kind of this friendship that grows between the minds of Newman and Kirk to where eventually Kirk sees uh, Newman's own conversion to Catholicism and as an inspired by it, uh, and then also just the the arguments themselves of of authority and conscience.
1: Well, of course, I know we've already touched on it to some degree, but uh, but you' you have your essay coming out on Dr. Kirk's conversion. So what what else can you share with us about uh, what you found what you found about that and and uh, sort of the journey? that he made because the conservative mind comes across as a really a very Catholic pers- a document uh, from a Catholic perspective in a lot of ways, but he was not, he was not actually Catholic when he wrote it.
0: That's right. Yeah. And I, I, I think uh, Dr. Brad Berzer usually says it best that he was pretty much already Catholic in, in the way he saw the world. Uh, and then it was a, a religious conviction that brought him over uh, eventually to, to Catholicism because uh, the, the way he, I mean, he was probably ninety-five percent of the way there, and Annette actually uh, mentioned that to me whenever I was in in Macosta. Um, that he was basically already Catholic. It was just a matter of sacramentally coming in uh, to, to the church. Um, and, and, of course, a big part of that, I would not want to uh, discredit Annette's own influence into his conversion, uh, sure. You know, her being such a great example of, of, a, of a passionate Catholic. And, of course, they fell in love, and that's going to <laughs> sway many men.
1: <laughs> uh, uh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> into
0: that. Mm-hmm. So, but he also had um, a wonderful priest friend of his that um, he didn't go through a kind of specifically RCIA pro- process, rather over several years. Um, he had a, a friend, um, I'm blanking on the priest's name right now, I believe it's Father Darcy, I might I may be incorrect on that, uh, but a, a friend of his who was very knowledgeable uh, in the faith and uh, very liberally educated, so he was able to connect with Dr. Kirk on many different uh, avenues. Uh, but he also just had some, some other Catholic friends that he respected, and of course several of the uh, people who are in the conservative mind, some of them are Catholic. And so um, there, I think there was just several other kind of aspects that brought him into that. But um, his big conversion experience that happened whenever he was in the military and in the desert, I, I, I think that's the beginning of it. That kind of brings mm-hmm. him away from a little bit of the spiritualist movement in which he was raised um, and brings him into sort of a, to mystic realism, if you will. Um, it, while he was in the desert, and of course the Stoics began that process, uh, but then Aquinas and Newman and Augustine kind of brought him all the way uh, from there.
1: Well, uh, yeah, I, I mean he he was somebody who who started his his journey as uh, in, in religion a, a long way away from formal Catholicism, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think it's understandable that it would, that it would take him a while to get there. I mean, I, I will say from my own personal perspective, I understand why it did just because when you start so far away, mm-hmm. um, it, there are a lot of hurdles, uh, to get over. And I think that, I think you're right that you can clearly see in his early, in these early writings, uh, conservative mind, you know, he was wrote that when, you know, what, 30 or around 30 years old was working on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's, it's very much, uh, Catholic in a, in a similar way to somebody like Chesterton, who, uh, a lot of his, a lot of his writings, you, you think what, you know, what a, what a tremendous, uh, piece of, of Catholic apologetics, but, but, Chesterton didn't convert till after, you know, till after they were written that, uh, that, you know, in a way that, that perhaps they were convincing themselves in some of these ways. Yeah. You know, and I,
0: I find that I have the utmost respect for people that take a long time to make the conversion because they're taking the questions very, very seriously. That that's why I, I knew when, when Kirk, when I found out about his conversion, I'm like, there's no way this man would take this decision lightly. There's just no way. He, he's too smart um, and, and too well-informed to not to, to understand that these are are very, very big life-changing questions. Um, and so I, I, I think that one of the problems we have kind of in modernity is that we take these questions too lightly. Um, you know, one of the kind of things that I like about Jordan Peterson in regard to the life of Jesus and whether or not he's divine, he takes that question unbelievably seriously. Yes, um, yes, he does. And we've flattened that so much. That he's just well, he's just a nice guru or or something like that. And so, when it comes to converting to Catholicism, there, there's a lot of teachings that are that are hard teachings that take time and grace and a lot of thinking and praying. And um, I, I have the utmost respect for people that it might take a while because that means they took it seriously.
1: Well, I, I will say, you know, from, from personal experience on this, um, that it it requires a shift. A viewpoint, um, and you're you're looking at maybe the same things, but you're looking at them from kind of a different direction, and that's one of those things that is uh, is very difficult to explain clearly to somebody who hasn't done it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, but and and it's hard to do. But once you do it. You can't undo it really. It's, it's, you know, once you, it's, you, it's like some of those, those visual puzzles you see. And somebody says, you know, here, there's a, there's a cat in this, you know, in this drawing, You're there no it's just a lot of blocks or something. <laughs> and then, and suddenly, you know, after you, you, well, you know, you keep staring at it and you keep staring at it and you keep trying to change your focus. And eventually this sort of way, Oh, now I see it. There's, there is a cat or whatever, you know, that they've, that they've embedded in this visually. That you have to just see it the right way, uh, but then once you see it, I mean, it was always there. Um, you just didn't apprehend it. But once you do apprehend it, you can't not apprehend it. And I I feel like that um, that that's one of that's the kind of thing I think that that people like Newman and Chesterton and Doctor Kirk uh, are going through, and that those aren't. Uh, it's not an easy thing to do, especially when you start off a long way from it. And I think all of them did. That's absolutely
0: right. Yeah. And to, to wrestle with the, the great ideas and to wrestle with, especially the, the different cultures that, that each one of them were, were dealing with and and what they were dealing with and the backgrounds. I mean, for, as you mentioned, for Dr. Kirk's background being this, uh, spiritualist, uh, movement from his parents and grandparents, um, that, that's a, <laughs> that's a pretty far stretch from an organized global religion like Catholicism. And so, um, it, it, it took time, um, to, to get there. And especially because there's also the, the, the fear of, you know, how families might react to this kind of thing and, and all of that. So it's, um, it's, it's a interesting path for all of them for sure.
1: Did, did Dr. Kirk write very much? I mean, I'm not aware of, of much that he wrote publicly about Catholicism per se or his or his conversion uh, what have you come across
0: yeah there's actually not that much um, most of what I was able to find particular of him speaking about Catholicism not just religion in general which there's quite a bit of that. Um, but Catholicism specifically, you really need to look into his letters. Um, right. And the, the great uh, collection from James uh, Person is, is excellent. Um, and So there's some really good stuff in there. But one of the best ones is that letter with, with William F. Buckley. It gives him a very mm-hmm. good uh, sense of who he was as a Catholic, and especially uh, in the post-Second Vatican Council, um, some of the struggles that he had uh, with some of the nonsense that happened after uh, the Second Vatican Council um, right. and so it gives him, gives some good insight there. And that's actually, uh, I believe that's the letter. It might be one other letter, but, uh, where he goes into particularly asked about John Paul II. Uh, and he says, if, if I were in his position, I would be doing the exact same thing he's doing. So it's pretty high praises <laughs> of, uh, of a yeah, kindred absolutely. soul, you know, <laughs> I,
1: I do remember, um, I, I do remember when I was there, uh, this would have been, you know, early nineties that Dr. Kirk, was not a fan of the local priest at the time. Now i i didn't i didn't attend mass with them. So uh, and and he didn't go very often that I was aware of. Annette always did, um, but uh, but I think he was. Uh, he He felt that the current priest was uh, was was of the uh, innovative variety that he was <laughs> that he was not uh, not a fan of.
0: yeah, there's actually a thing. letter um, that he wrote uh, that he was frustrated with, and I don't think he mentioned the specific priest, but he was um frustrated because all of the the homilies and discussions were about political issues in South America. Uh, (laughs) he's like, you know, this is about my relationship with God and transcendence. And, and you're, you're talking about South American gun Lords and stuff like that. That wasn't necessarily his, (laughs) and he would always say, you're, you're talking about things that you have no idea what you're talking about. he's like, focus on the things, you know, which, which you've been trained to talk about, you know?
1: Right, yeah that that would uh, that's advice that would serve us all well. I think <laughs> right. if we were if we were to follow that, well, and so you've also got uh, an essay coming out you mentioned on Doctor Kirk's aesthetics, and so certainly aesthetics are something that were very important to him, and and, uh, and are, are also important to me. And it's, I will say one of the things that um, that Bishop Barron emphasizes strongly, and and uh, and I think very well so what uh, what did you find? In your uh, in your research with Doctor Kirk's aesthetics,
0: yeah. So he uh, he never really wrote like a philosophical treatise of of beauty. Um, of course, he did say that Edmund Burke's um, small work on on beauty uh, was very uh, influential uh, on him. Uh, but in large part, I focused on some of his more practical ideas of beauty, such as architecture, which, uh, as you know um, from his essays, he was very passionate about, and he saw this kind of um, modern demystifying of of architecture, and he called it uh, architecture of boredom. You know, um, right. he was very passionate about that. And in large part, um, the the sources and and where our ideas of beauty come from, I would say he just is in line with the great tradition. You go all the way back to Augustine and Aquinas and Plotinus and several others talking about beauty, leading up to Edmund Burke. Uh, that's where Kirk would would certainly provide at least his philosophical understanding and and in many ways I would imagine he would um, agree with Roger Scruton uh, in in, who actually did create kind of a philosophical treatise of it Uh, but in large part um, what I was able to find was that his main concern was that if beauty leaves the world something about human nature leaves too Um, that we we need beauty Um, there's something to the human uh, thing that just if you don't have it around, your behavior will start to reflect that, and so he actually right. provided a couple of different uh, social uh, studies of different places. I think I think one was Detroit, um, where he talked about whenever the the architecture itself was meant for just economic realities. Crime increases, so does illegitimate families. Lots of things come from that. And he basically makes the argument that that's because there's nothing to inspire them to something higher than themselves. And so beauty, um, one of the uses of it um, is to to, one, because it's a deeply human thing, but two, just for civil social order, it's a good thing uh, to have around.
1: Right, well, and that and that does tie back to uh, to our discussion of of personalism. Right. I think earlier that uh, that that beauty, that architecture on a human scale, uh, these are things that recognize our our personhood, our humanness, and that that and that it is built for us rather than we are supposed to be sort of jammed into a cubicle or something that uh, you know that's that's simply the exact same as one as a hundred others on the same floor and, and a million others across the country, you know, it's, it's that, that we're, that, that we are more than that. And, um, the recent podcast with Eric Bootsma, the, uh, the architect, uh, he and I discussed some um, about Dr. Kirk's views on, on architecture and he mentioned Detroit as well. But, um, but I think it, it is, uh, it is something that, we can't minimize to, to simply a, a side item of interest, but it is central, especially in our in our modern time, because there's been such there's been this war really since the post since World War Two. Uh, there's been this war against beauty uh, mm-hmm. that carried out in, in in many ways, sort of a, as a sort of a government Funded exercise and a lot of uh, in a lot of situations. Yeah,
0: and also you know, as I'm sure you know as well, he was very uh, he did not like the idea of social planners. Um, a, no, he did not. <laughs> and uh, and a lot of these cities that he's talking about were based off of the the plans of these social planners, who most often end up being the bad guys in a lot of his ghost stories.
1: <laughs> right. Yes. You know,
0: so because he understood social planning as seeing human beings as just a mechanistic reality that, um, you can just create a little beehive for them to live in and they can go to their little job. And, and, and he was so much of a kind of bohemian that, um, he felt like, no, this is, um, where they live, what surrounds them. Um, all of that stuff speaks to their soul in a, in a way that whenever we just create concrete block buildings, uh, it dehumanizes them. It it removes the soulfulness of, of this, um, area for these people. And so, um, for him to place these people as bad guys, I think it says a lot about, uh, what he thought
1: about social planners. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. His, his, um. His fiction is is an excellent uh, is an excellent window into his thinking. In a in a way, I think that maybe people don't don't pay a lot of attention to. But when you when you do look at his at who his bad guys are, there's a reason why they they are his bad guys. They're not randomly chosen. Um, but he was uh, he was sort of expressing his own frustrations i guess and
0: yeah and, and that was one of the things as well that really made me just love kirk's work was not only was he this great thinker but he could also create culture itself um, and so I thinking about that idea of Newman at the, the beginning of our conversation between the real and the notional, to me, his ghost stories, that that is the real that he's trying to convey, a, a, an opportunity for a real experience of what he's trying to say in, in all of his essays and in, in his other works. Um, because some of those ghost stories, I mean, as, as I think was mentioned with the podcast with, with Brad Bursey, even Stephen King, right, pra- praised the right. talent that he had. Um, but I, I think that to be able to bring ideas into a narrative without making those ideas annoying is a very specific talent. Right. And he had it. He had that ability.
1: Right. I think you're right about that. I mean, there's there's nothing really worse. And Dr. Kirk would would absolutely have agreed with this. There's nothing worse than just straightforwardly didactic yes. fiction. <laughs> it's just um, I mean, nobody wants to read it, um, but that you're communicating truths through written beauty essentially and that's what and that's what he was doing and and talking about creating culture i mean even if we if we just look at uh sort of the 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 piety hill campus Mm -hmm. there um it is a it is a place of uh that just that brings that sort of brings you mental calm and mm-hmm. and sort of an ordered soul just to be there it sort of feeds the soul and you know that's something that that he deliberately created and that that annette has kept going uh, all these years but it it was it was meant to be that way and and it it has that that um, impact on you. you feel better for having been there yes. if you go
0: Yes. You know, in one of the uh, essays that he writes about his uh, kind of philosophy of ghost stories, um, he mentions the fact, and, and it actually reminded me a lot of von Balthasar, but he mentions the fact that the sort of um, supernatural awakens something in a soul. And of course, there's one route of doing that, which was through maybe fear, <laughs> uh, which is what right. good ghost stories can do. It, it awakens you to the supernatural, especially in a time like ours, which is so flattened and, and we're so materialistic. It, it awakens you to, oh my gosh, there's something beyond this mere material world. Um, and it actually reminded me a lot of Hans and Balthazar's understanding of beauty being this kind of arresting quality because it's something that no matter what your stance is, no matter you know what your background might be, if you look at something beautiful, you hear something beautiful, you you now have a connective ability or an entryway into another human person next to you. And in the same way, I think that's what Kirk was doing with his ghost stories. It's It's something that all of us in some way, shape or form we desire the supernatural and sometimes much like his friend Flannery O'Connor god has to shout at us a little bit to awaken us to that and and sometimes a good ghost story can do that to you
1: right i i think that tying into to flannery o'connor is is a good point because her her fiction especially to us and it really at her time too it was so shocking yes uh the kinds the kinds of things that she expresses um and and Doctor Kirk is in his own way. His fiction is very different from hers in some ways, uh, in the way it's presented. But at the same time, I think that they are they're both attempting to awaken uh, awaken the human person to the transcendent, and they're they're trying to to get us to to realize our own personhood, if you will, yes. and, and our obligations. Um, as such
0: that's right that's right it reminds me of um chris walker percy what i would say was that same uh, kind of guild of of writers who would write things that were just so shocking but it would awaken you up but there's a great um a short story by gk chesterton where a guy climbs up on a um a roof and s- points a gun at a at a man and shoots a, shoots at him but misses him on purpose and the reason being was to wake him up to what is real and so we as Christians, as believers, we absolutely believe that the supernatural is real, um, that there is a supernatural war going on uh, for, for all of our souls. And so I think Kirk knew that very, very, very well. Um, and so seeing ghost stories as, a, as an avenue or a, an ability to, one, kind of bring in his ideas to the imagination, uh, but then also to awaken us up to the reality of what's going on uh, in the spiritual world.
1: Well, I appreciate you coming on and talking about these things. I, I know that we could explore all, these. Oh, there's f- a lot. Yeah. <laughs> inexhaustible uh, topics. But uh, well, now you're you're headed back up to Macosta this year. Is that right?
0: I am. I'll be heading up there uh, later this summer for about four or five days. And I'm, uh, I'm very lucky I'm going to be able to bring my wife. Um, so I'll be doing some research uh, while I'm there and get to see uh, Annette again. And so I'm looking forward to it. It's kind of like a little pilgrimage as well. So it's nice.
1: Oh, absolutely. And beware of ghosts. Uh, I, um, I never, uh, I never directly encountered, uh, one, but there were several times I felt like that I Mm. had. So I, (laughs) because, uh, if, if you're all alone and it's dark at the right time, uh, (laughs) you're, you're, you're pretty sure bad things are about to happen. But, uh, but I was uh, I I was saved from uh, from a direct encounter. Although uh, you know, Doctor Kirk would have uh, would would have been thrilled if I had uh, <laughs> if I had seen if I had seen a ghost. Uh They always said that that when the old house burned down, that they uh, that they didn't see them anymore after that. So the, interesting. You know how they tied to the. Oh yeah, ask Annette about that when you're up there. But um, of course, the the current house was sort of a was uh, really Uh, an addition to the old original house and then the original house burned down on ash Wednesday as it, as Mm. it so happens. Um, and then of course the, the current house, the brick home, uh, survived. And that's what they, what they live in, uh, exclusively. Now it was, uh, so it, it was nice that they had a second house attached that they could <laughs> that they could go to but uh, you know
0: and his house is is such a I actually used that example in my my essay on on his understanding of beauty of how this kind of quirkiness um that was another thing that attracted me to 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 Kirk was just this kind of strange but beautiful quirkiness that he had and you see it in his house very specifically Oh uh, absolutely <laughs> yes yeah the
1: the uh, the house is very much um uh, Kind of that that tradition and the individual talent idea because it, it is it is full of of his idea of what the house should be yet at the same time it looks like it's very old yes uh, and it, and it has been there for a, for a long time although it was only built in the 1970s I think um, so it's uh, it, it's very much a reflection of that uh, of, of sort of that that old. Um, a term, I guess, we would use now, sort of that old soul yeah. <laughs> idea uh, of Doctor Kirk, uh, that he sort of pulls these things in. But it, but it is a, a very, uh, it's a striking building in, the, in its setting, uh, which you don't see a lot of houses like that in Macosta, and uh, uh, and and yet it it looks perfectly in place. Yes. And so it's uh, it's it has both qualities for sure.
0: Well, I am definitely looking forward
1: to going back. That's for sure. Well, I uh, am envious of you for it. Hopefully uh, I can get up there again before too long and and the, uh, the beloved governor of Michigan will allow people to travel through her state again. But um, I really do appreciate you being on and I look forward to seeing the articles and ultimately, uh, I'm sure... Uh, a book on the personalism of Russell Kirk.
0: Absolutely wonderful to chat with you Alan and and as I said anytime you want to talk about Kirk always reach out.
1: (laughs) Well uh, we absolutely will need to do it again.
0: Sounds great.